Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm so glad you decided to come here today. If you've got your Bibles, you can get started. Get your Bibles out. John, the Gospel of John. We will be in the first chapter to begin. I've been away for a couple of weeks, uh, traveling some with family. I was here last week just participating in the service. But something happened within those last few weeks that I've been kind of dying to be able to talk about because I think it's pretty ridiculous, really. NFL quarterback Aaron Rodgers, he spent four days in a darkness retreat. Have you heard about this? It's, he, he locked himself, he got into this little hobbit hole in the ground, underground, and then closed himself off for four days so that he would be able to clear his mind to make the decision of whether or not to continue forward for $56 million next year or to move on to a different team that would pay him more money than that. ESPN has announced that he has come out of the hole, so good for him. I'm all about cutting the cord. I'm all about our family getting ourselves out and away from things, about turning off our phones, turning off our alerts, setting aside. We're not responding to emails and those type of things. But to put me in a hole in the ground, in total darkness, there is no way that I come out of that space a more sane person than I went into that space. I, 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 you don't need to feel sorry for me. You don't need to send me flowers, but I'm, I, I'm a little bit afraid of the dark. Would, you, would, would anyone else agree with me on this? Because if you aren't, then you definitely have not been in this building at night. If you've been in this church building at night, I can't tell you how many times after leading, leaving a late elder meeting that has gone on, all the elders have gone home, I've sent a couple of emails, and then I walk down the hall, and then you hear something. There is someone in the building. And your mind starts, right. my heartbeat is, is coming up right now just talking about it. There is someone in this building. There is, I can hear them. And sure enough, I have to start looking in rooms and walking around and coming into this room and he's up there hiding. So look up there at him. Sam Reyes is in the booth in the middle of the night. <laughs> or you'll hear this banging, banging, banging on the pipes. You're like, what is that? It's Al Maurer <laughs> at midnight installing a toilet in the women's room. Usually in a situation like that, when your heart starts racing, your mind, what you have to do is settle yourself down and say, there is a reasonable explanation for this. And nine times out of ten, there is. There's absolutely no reason to be afraid of the dark. But there are people and there are situations, if you were a sailor and you were on night watch and your job was to watch to make sure that you don't run the ship aground, you have to know what's out there in the dark. If you're serving in the military, it's your job to be awake and to be watching, to be certain that you know what's going on out there in the dark. It is very important that you know, but probably not in this building. Probably not. But the reality is, friends, you and I, whether we realize it or not, we are participants in a great struggle, a great cosmic struggle between light and darkness. And that struggle is very real. 
Billions of people are left out there walking around, searching, hunting in the darkness with no light. And, and the reality is that you and I, you see, we are part of this conflict. We are part of this battle. It has been going on not just for weeks or months or years, but from the beginning of time. It's this clash between light and darkness, between the author of light, the one true God, and the prince of darkness. If you're familiar with scripture, scripture, the New Testament opens up, the Gospel of Matthew opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Mark begins with the beginnings of his ministry. The Gospel of Luke begins with the nativity story. But the Gospel of John, it goes much farther back. John begins in the beginning, before time was, God was. Let's read it together. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that had been made. So since the beginning of time, there has been this conflict between light and darkness. In Genesis 1, we see that God's first act of creation was to create light. God spoke, and light popped into existence. However, just a few chapters after that, we see the conflict Beginning, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam is choosing to turn away from the light and turn towards his own way, his own plan, his own journey through the darkness. And from that point on, the world is set towards a path of darkness and towards destruction and always trying to seek to overcome the light. And this has been true since the very beginning. And it's evident through all of the story of Scripture. A couple of years ago, we walked through a sermon series, The Long Story Short, and we walked through all of Scripture in a very brief overview, but we were able to walk through. And this was the way it was in the days of Noah. And this is the way it was there at the Tower of Babel. And this is the way it was there with Abraham and with Moses and with David. And this is the way it was with the time of the judges and the kings and the prophets. So throughout all of human history, mankind has sought to, to create systems and structures and this whole society based on a false center. The false center being man as the center of the universe instead of God being the center of the universe. And darkness seeks to twist our understanding of how the world really works. And we place ourselves in the center as if we had some control over our own destiny. But darkness cannot overcome the light. Verse 4, John chapter 1, it says, in him or in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome. Jesus is the light of the world. Beginning with Abraham, God chose one man and called one man to create one people so that through that people, all of the peoples of the earth would be able to be blessed and they might recognize God for who he was. Jesus is the true light of the world, God with us. Jesus is the light of the world, that light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome. What are we talking about here? The darkness represents those hidden places, the secret spaces where, where people presume that no one knows what's really happening, where no one is 
watching, where the the power struggle is anything but wholesome or anything but fair, where the rules are constantly being broken, where the choices that are being made are deceptful, (laughs) deceptive and deceitful, deceptful, we'll put that together. Really, there's no darker place in those recesses than the dark places of sexual sin. Something that was created to be intimate, for God to demonstrate through us His complete intimacy with us, affection and love between a husband and a wife, dashed, broken into something damaging, something hurtful, something cheap. Sexual sin is probably more rampant today than it's ever been in all of human history, even when it comes to Christians, even when it comes to the church. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is a familiar passage and a situation that Jesus is in, what he deals with when someone is caught red-handed in the middle of sexual sin. And we do so because you may be dealing with this, whether it's in your workplace or in your family, or you may be here this morning in the middle of sexual sin, actively pursuing it and wondering, what would Jesus think about this? What would his followers, the church, think about the situation that I'm in if they really knew what was going on? John chapter 8, is exactly where we need to head this morning because it gives a perfect example of how Jesus handled sexual sin. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus is the light of the world. What happens in the dark never stays in the dark. What happens in the dark never stays in the dark. And looking here at the story in John chapter 8, we get a really good illustration of what it is, what what it really looks like, the way that sinners actually treat sinners. I'll give you it in one word. They do so harshly, without question. We sinners are not too nice to sinners around us. We're really good at pointing fingers at that guy or that gal and the situation that they're in. We smell our sin on other people, but what ends up happening is we don't smell it on ourselves at all. You haven't used deodorant for a while, spiritually speaking, and boy do you stink, and you don't even know it. You don't even realize it, but you can see it, you can smell it, you can realize it around all the sinfulness around you, and that's what we sinners will do, is we act harshly just like they did here. According to this narrative, she is caught in the very act of adultery. She was guilty before the Lord, and she was guilty before the world, guilty in the law. Now, adultery is a vile sin, one that we're talking about this morning, it's a very personal and private sin, and yet it is no worse than any other sin. James chapter 2 verse 10 says this, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking the whole law. 
So the idea is, is we are just as guilty as this woman right here. So before you turn your nose up at the stink of this situation, remember, you smell too. Look at the person next to you and say, you smell too. In their haste to bring this woman to Jesus, most commentators look at this story, most historians look at this and said they probably dragged her out into the street naked, if not clothed, very little. They didn't give her any sufficient time to put herself together. They are dragging her out in force, in public, humiliated by her sin, separated from anyone who would be there to protect her. This lover that she was with is not there either, judged, sentenced to death without trial by self-righteous leaders. Because what happens in the dark never stays in the dark. Sin is a shameful thing. No matter how skillfully you think that it's been kept and hidden from the eyes of men, in this situation particularly, Jesus knows all about it. And as a reminder, remember, at one day we are told, Luke chapter 12, verse 3, it will be revealed before all. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. In their efforts to humiliate this woman and discredit Jesus, they actually brought her, ironically, to the very best possible place, the very best possible person they could. They brought her to the very one who could deal with her past, deal with her problems, and could give her a new life again. And for anyone who looks at the Bible that we read week in, week out, hopefully day in and day out, and thinks that this ancient test that we have in front of us has little application to our real lives, pay attention, friends. Because this could literally be pulled off the, the front page of newspapers from anywhere in our countries. Just look for immoral activities where the affluent or the privileged escape and the less fortunate are the ones that are punished. Where the boss is the one who's had an affair, but it's the secretary that gets fired on the spot. Remember, she was caught in the act, but only the woman is here and brought to judgment. The man is not brought out into the public at all. What happened to him? Why does he get a free pass? And we find out here the reason why. The text tells us that the religious leaders, the rulers of the day, were doing this to try to trap Jesus. If they simply let, if Jesus simply lets the woman go, then he would be seen by the crowd as, as uh, allowing sin and could have been arrested then himself being in violation of the law. But then also, if he gives permission for this woman to be killed, to be stoned, then he'd be accused by Rome as being a rebel rouser of, of causing trouble. And he could have destroyed his own reputation because he was calling himself the friend of sinners, calling himself the compassionate Christ, the one who is merciful and would forgive sins. They've got him cornered. They felt that no matter what Jesus said and what he did, he had no wiggle room. They could have cared less about this woman. They could have cared less about her sin. They could have cared less about her soul or her eternal destiny. All they cared about was pressing the agenda. Their brand of righteousness, they were going to make sure that it went through. And you better believe it as they are standing there surrounded by people with stones in their fists that they would have let them kill her on the spot for the power and the politics that were at hand. They had him. 
and their plan might have succeeded. Was he an ordinary man? But they were not dealing with an ordinary man. They were dealing with Jesus, the Christ. And he simply refused to play their silly game. Notice how he responds to their arguments. First, he's going to just absolutely ignore that they're saying anything at all. And then he's going to expose their motives. Picking up in verse 6, but Jesus bent down. He started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Jesus is the light of the world. What is hidden in the heart never stays hidden. What is hidden in the heart never stays hidden. One of the things I should add in here, because it may be a question, and if there is, this is a good time to be able to get it out of the way and, and say this. So some of your Bibles at the beginning of this chapter say something like, these verses do not appear in the oldest manuscripts. And so just so that you know, there's like an internal debate among theologians as to accepting this as part of the accurate part of the text. But if you've studied the Gospel of John, there is this back and forth that happens each chapter, this pattern where there's an incident followed by a sermon that Jesus preaches. In John chapter 5, you have an incident followed by a message. John chapter 6, an incident followed by a message. John chapter 7, an incident followed by a sermon that he preaches. And so if you take away the incident here in chapter 8 and you only get the sermon, it seems to be out of sequence with everything else that the author John is doing. So for those of you who are Bible nerds, you just want to debate that, good for you. We want to be able to get that out there. But this is generally recognized as being part of the text because we need to be able to see why he's going to say what he's going to say in verse 12. But there's always this question, what is it that he was writing on the ground? What was he writing? And there's all kinds of conjecture about that because we're not told. To be honest, we really have no idea. We can guess, but we don't know. But we do know is that the word write, when it says that he is writing on the ground or writing in the dust, it doesn't just mean that he was doodling little pictures in the dust. He was not playing tic-tac-toe. It's a very significant word. It's a word that would be more translated towards writing an accusation or, or uh, writing down recording an accusation about something. So when he's writing, there's, he, he's documenting something there. Jesus is writing an accusation against them. In fact, some of your English translations there in front of you might say that Jesus was writing down their secret sins. I'm not told it was. We are told the way that the word is written here is that it is an accusation, some accusatory remark against the leaders who brought this woman caught in adultery. This is significant because this is a fulfillment of a prophecy or a prediction. So in the preceding chapter, in chapter 7, uh, they were at what is called the Feast of the Tabernacle. Jesus stood up on the great day in front of all that were gathered there. And the feast said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he will be able to drink of the springs of living water. If you come to VBS in the summers, we sing a song, spring up a well, gush, 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 gush. And we sing these different songs. This is a fulfillment of the prophet 
Isaiah. But in chapter 8, as Jesus is writing in the sand, ready to have your mind blown, check out this, this on the screen in front of you. This is what is actually being fulfilled from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, 600 years prior. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. The day before, Jesus had called himself the spring of living water, and now he's here doodling in the dust, writing accusations in the dust. Oh, snap! Did you catch that? Are you paying attention? Because they are. If you're missing it, they are not missing it. Jesus just called them out. Why did he do that? How can he do that? Because this is no ordinary man. This is Jesus, and Jesus is the light of the world. And when you are dealing with the light of the world, what's hidden in the heart never stays hidden. Jesus exposes them. When Jesus said this, when he speaks, he said, let any one of you, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. And at this point, all the shouting begins to die down, begins to stop. And all that could be heard was the sound of rocks dropping there in the street. The shuffling of sandals as they quietly slip away, the youngest to the oldest. We see the oldest to the youngest. These men had been exposed here before their fellow men, the accused woman, and most importantly, before Jesus, the light of the world. Now, we do need to at least give these men credit because when they were exposed, when the fact, when they saw themselves for who they really were, they, they actually stepped away. The painful realization, which is hard for all of us, of, of where we really stand before a holy God, they stopped calling for the death of this woman. And perhaps it would only be Jesus who could clear a temple in that fashion. And, and when the last rock had hit the dusty floor, Jesus stands up and he faces this woman, this sinful woman caught in adultery. And then he stands there before her, him standing there now as the only person who's ever walked on the face of the earth who's actually qualified to pick up the first stone and cast it if he chose to do so, as well as all the rest of the stones there in the temple and stone her to death. But when she faced Jesus, she was facing the ultimate judge of all mankind, what would he do? Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What did he do? Jesus forgave her. Jesus is the light of the world, and what Jesus has forgiven is always forgiven. What Jesus has forgiven is always forgiven. The only one qualified in all of the world, in all of humankind, to throw a stone refused to do so. He dealt with her on the basis of grace. The religious men had condemned her and considered her as good as dead. But Jesus, however, he saw someone worthy of love. He saw someone worthy. He saw a life worth salvaging and saving and rescuing. And so he did so. He offers her grace. Jesus already knows what the future 
will hold. Jesus knows what the next days, weeks, months will look like, that he will be going to a cross. He already knows that his blood would be shed there to pay the price for her sins and all that she had done and all that she had erased in her life. He was going to cleanse it and wash it away as well as every one of the men standing in the circle around her for the sins of the rulers, for the sins of mankind, for the sins of all time. This passage is actually used often to justify People will quote this to justify their own sin. When, when they have been exposed, they arrogantly say, well, who are you to call me out? Who are you to call me a sinner? If you're without sin, why don't you throw the first stone? And the attitude of that statement totally misses the point of this story. The woman in the story is guilty. She is caught red-handed. She is absolutely guilty. And, and the devious nature of how the Pharisees have brought her into the square is irrelevant because she is just as guilty no matter why she is there. She is caught in sin. But Jesus tells her, he tells the woman to stop sinning, to leave that life and to walk in his light. Verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, as he spoke to the crowd, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. Followers of Christ will never walk in darkness. Jesus says here, I am the light of the world. That's what this sermon series is, is pouring into, keeping an eye on watching all the different times that Jesus says this. We are continually looking at these phrases, these I am statements where Jesus is declaring repeatedly again and again. And he always makes sure that the Pharisees, the rulers, the Sadducees, the leaders, the teachers of the law, that they are there because they know the scriptures. They know these passages. They know these prophecies. And Jesus is claiming to be the chosen one. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be God. In the preceding chapter, there was this feast, <coughs> the Feast of the Tabernacles. And now, chapter 8, the feast is over. You know Christmas, we love Christmas, we have a lot of celebrations around Christmas, but the day after Christmas, it's usually over. The tree starts to come down, the, the wrapping paper is all torn apart and packed in the garbage cans and taken away. It's, it's over, it's totally over. And so here's this great celebration, much like Christmas, the lights are coming down. Jewish tradition is that they would actually light these massive like 50-gallon drums full of oil that they would light for the duration of uh, this festival, uh, the festival that they had there of the tabernacle. And these, these huge drums that were full of oil, they would burn to represent God's faithfulness as he had taken them through the desert. The people of Israel, as they walked through the desert, the pillar of fire that was there, the light, and it would light the whole courtyard, the whole temple, these, these huge cauldrons of light, this pillar of fire. But the festival was over, and the light had burned out. And so they would climb up. The youngest priests would be the ones tasked with the job to climb up because they were the strongest and to take down these 50-gallon drum size 
uh, cabin of oil. They would have the job of taking them down, packing them up, and putting them away, just like we do with all of our Christmas supplies. The lights are coming down. The trees are being thrown out. The festival is over. Jesus is there, and he's in the middle of the temple court when the lights are coming down and these huge lamps are being taken down. Where the whole city had been illuminated for a week or more, the courtyards, everything had been lit down, and, and, and now there's no light. And that's when he makes this statement. I am the light of the world. You guys just celebrated this, this week, celebrating the journey of how the, that God's light had let in your path and how it had, had let you know where to go day and night. And he says, I will light your path. I will light your life. I am the light of the world. Isn't that great? Come follow me, he says. And you will never walk in darkness again. You see these lamps massive, but they've eventually burned themselves out. Follow me and you will never walk in darkness again. And that's not all. Continue through the verse. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying that he is the I am. He is the promised one. He is the light of the world and he is taking it even further. Don't miss the audience. Don't miss the people who are standing around and what they have just experienced. That the woman who was caught in adultery is his primary listener. That not only those who are, who are near to him, not only those who are obedient to him, not only those who have lived perfect lives as close as they possibly can to the, to the path that he would have them walk on, not only those, but even this adulterous woman, that she, barely clothed, that she could carry the light of the world. She can have the light of Christ too. And because of Jesus, not only does she walk along with Jesus, but followers of Christ have the light of Christ. Followers of Christ obtain the light and the life of Christ. Even in their imperfect hands, they possess it. They hold it. And friends, you and I, as damaged as we might be, we leave the life of sin to follow Jesus and possess the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the source of life. He is the illuminator himself. He is the power and the light. It's all within his being. And he just shines. That's all that he can do. He just shines. Moses went up on the mountaintop and he came down and he radiated with the glory of God. Jesus dispels the darkness. Children of light carry the light. Children of light carry the light. Not too far from here, on your way down the 219, if you're heading south to Ellicottville with your family to go skiing, or you know someone who has done that before, you're going to cross over this enormous bridge spanning over something called the Zor Valley Canyon. Not many people know about this canyon. Some of you do, but not many people do. It's a pretty impressive geological site. For context, so that you understand, Niagara Falls falls over 180 feet at the edge of the falls, 180 feet drop. The Zor Valley Canyon at its deepest point is 480 feet. It is a massive Structure, things you never knew about in Western New York. Years ago, my father-in-law, my brother-in-law, one of his close friends, 
Uh, they were there in the canyon. They were in a canoe. They went down through the gorge. Now, to be clear, if you don't know the canyon, there is no waterfall. There's not a spot like that. But the gorge itself, uh, the valley itself, because there are these high banks and these high walls, it just creates this flume that water fires down through at the base of the canyon. It's pretty intense with water rapids, and they have to navigate their way through. So long story short, just before nightfall, these guys ran into some trouble on the river. They were capsized there on the river, and then they, they, their canoe was washed away, and then they were washed, dripping wet, to opposite sides of the moving water. And the canoe was long gone, and it's getting dark very fast. On the side of the, the canyon that the boys were on was the, the steep cliff wall. There's no way of escape, no way to get out of there. And my father-in-law decided to leave them there, to tell the boys, stay put, don't move, don't do anything until we get help. And then he was able to climb out the other side of the canyon. He made his way to a farmer's field, which was a farmer's house, which had a phone. He was able to call 911 and get help. Within a few hours, a professional search party was formed. They came together at the local fire hall and they were actually sent out to be able to go there to go and look for the boys. Now, think with me for a moment. How foolish would it have been? How foolish would it have been for that search party to get, gather together there at the fire hall, to talk through a plan, to, to draw it up on the board, to train to make sure that they knew what the plan was in this well-lit space that they made sure that my father-in-law had blankets around him, that he was warm and that he was dry. How foolish it would be for them to go out to repel over the side of that wall in complete darkness without carrying any lights with them. How foolish would that be? That makes no sense at all. Well, that's not what they did. They gathered, they put together a plan, and then they went out looking for the boys, and they carried as many lights as they possibly could. They went looking and searching with the light for the boys who were there. They were together. They were huddled together, trying to stay warm next to the river in the dark, feeling like the river was getting closer and closer and closer. They found them that night, praise God, because they were carrying the light. Children of light carry the light. As the band comes forward this morning, as we come closer to closing the message, if you know Jesus today, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, the very purpose of your salvation is to bear the light of Christ. We're not just huddling around in the fire hall talking about the people that we could go out and search for. No, we are going out in the search party in the darkness, and you had better be carrying the light. Children of light carry the light. Children of light dispel the darkness. You and I dispel darkness. The business of light is banishing darkness. That's its entire job. This is what light does. And we too, carrying the light of Christ, bearing the witness of the light, we too become the light of the world. Proclaim the light. Shine the light. Shine the light of Christ into all all nations. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're listening later to the podcast and you've never given your life to Christ. Well, the decision day is today. Today is the day. You don't have to be a Christian to see that our world is continuing to digress, that lights everywhere are continuing to burn out. 
Faith traditions of all sorts outside of Christianity are trying to deal with the fact that human beings are corrupt and that the darkness is closing in. If we just live better lives, that'll fix it. It won't fix it, friends. Not without the light. Methodologies, practices of all sorts and sizes are trying to mold people into better behavior and yet we remain in darkness. So maybe you, like this woman, your life has been wrecked, it's been ruined by sin. Maybe you, like this woman, have been hurt by religious people. Maybe you too are looking for a compassionate, a sweet and loving Savior. I invite you to come to the light. I invite you to come to Jesus. He cares about you just like you are. He is the light of the world. He wants to save you. He wants to deliver you. He wants to pull you from your bondage and set you free. And therefore, he calls you, invites you to come to him today. I'm going to come to the floor in just a moment. We're going to sing a song where we'll have an opportunity where, where eyes will be faced to the front and, and voices and attention will be focused upward. But you can come and I'll pray with you. I'd love that opportunity to be able to share the love of Jesus with you or about something else entirely. I'd love the opportunity to sit in one of these chairs and pray with you. Would you stand this morning as we sing together? The first line of the song that we're going to sing is how great the chasm, how great that distance is between us and God. But as this text teaches us, he alone closes that gap. Let's sing together.